Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by lionrock.life. At this point, I'm so constantly overcome by anxiety and panic and drinking, and it's just this horrible cycle, and I can't do it anymore. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like pondering, what do I do? Come on, what do I do? My partner's cooking soup, and I'm in the corner, and he says, come and have your lunch. And I come over, and I cannot pick up a spoon can't pick up a spoon to feed myself in my own house Monday afternoon just with my partner I'm I have nothing nothing Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Annie McDonald. Annie's life began to fall apart at seven years old. She and her five siblings lived a happy life in a small town in Australia, but she could feel something happening. It wouldn't be fully understood until years later when it was revealed that her mother had a child with an influential man in town who was not their father. Everyone turned on her mother and she was forced to leave the family, taking Annie's sister with her. Annie was left with an immense wound. She'd done everything she was supposed to. She was the good girl and her mother still left. At 16, she found alcohol and a few years later began a career in the wine industry. It was the perfect place to hide what would become an all-encompassing addiction that ruined her life. The alcohol took a hold of everything. In the later years of her addiction, she was left with panic attacks and was unable to even hold a teacup. Today, she's recently celebrated nine years of sobriety and helps others on a journey of healing through her work with her organization, Powerfully Sober, where she helps people recreate and reimagine their one extraordinary life. Friends, such an awesome interview, so fun to talk to her, and such a great example of how consequences of alcoholism and addiction can look different for different people. Annie's career in the wine industry very much masked her addiction and allowed it to go much longer than it might have in another industry. We see this all the time in people with big sales careers that revolve around a lot of drinking as it relates to business. People are able to mask their addiction and Annie was certainly one of those. Her career in corporate America today is very, very different and such a testament to what we can do in sobriety when we want to make our life the best it can possibly be. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, I give you Annie McDonald. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here, Annie. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ashley. It's great to be here. So you were a listener or are a listener and are now a guest. This is very exciting. You've been listening to the podcast as as a sober person and now you get to share your story. I know. I know. And it's my nine year soberversary tomorrow. Wow. Nine years. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, congratulations ahead of time. Thank you so much. So I want to start a bit about your childhood. Maybe we start around seven and and where you lived, where you grew up and, and what that was like. I grew up in a happy little suburban family uh, in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. And, you know, young parents, very young parents. I'm the eldest of six now. But back when I was seven, I was the eldest of five. And yeah, mum and dad, you know, center of our existence, really. Like just us, the kids living in suburbia, playing sport, pretty much a normal things, really. And I guess around about the age of seven, I began to notice things were a little off. You know, there was a lot of tension in the house. Um, my mum had just not long before given birth to twins, fraternal twins, actually, twin boys. So new babies in the house, three girls, 
young people still in their mid-20s probably, so, you know, very young parents, lots of kids, dad working two jobs, all all of that sort of thing. So I guess uh, I was the eldest and I was very much acutely aware of some of the changes that were going on in the household. For me as a child, I was trying to, you know, be good make sure that I didn't create any more ruffles or ripples or issues within what was already seeming to me being things sort of looking like they were falling apart a little bit. Um, And I desperately, like the thought of our family falling apart was just, just a hideous thing for me to kind of comprehend at that age. I guess from that point on, I started to develop a bit of a hypervigilant kind of anxiety around being aware, watching, trying to monitor situations, trying to, I guess, offset any tension that I could. Um, My parents were starting to argue very, very frequently. My dad was getting slightly violent. He was drinking a lot. My mum never drank at all in my, I've never seen her drink, but he was, he was starting to drink quite a bit. And I would, you know, literally wait by the window. And if he came home, at the normal time I could you know breathe and let my shoulders relax a little bit as the time ticked past that moment of you know expecting him back home and it got later and later the whole house would start to wind up with tension and um because I guess he was drinking he was drinking or you know you could expect that there was going to be an argument uh, of some sort you know you've got a young mum who's been with five kids all day um manage, trying to manage them and I don't remember her being a great cook but she's probably, she's probably <laughs> cooking dinner do you know what I mean like uh the husband's not home and and at the same time he's also a young man probably wanting to go for a drink with friends after work right. or right. you know do normal things so it's not unexpected there was going to be clashes but I think as children you really you don't understand and the fact that your parents are trying to shield you from arguments when you can hear the arguments right 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 you know what I mean it's like oh my gosh so fast forward a couple of years you know I'm I'm getting into high school I'm, I'm pretty I guess I look back now and I was pretty reserved but in my mind I'm like totally creative and active. I'm playing a lot of sport. I'm pretty good at basketball. Um, I'm doing all the things, but I'm also like very anxious, anxious about everything, anxious about getting less than 100% on a grade, you know, anxious about looking a certain way. When I think back about it, there was little Annie was probably, you know, sitting there just desperately holding so much inside of herself. Whereas we didn't talk about anything. This is back in the seventies. Like you're just kind of very contained, even at school, you're not being taught anything. There's nothing like mindfulness. There's nothing about, you know, how to relax your nervous system. There's, there's no, um, you know, we're not talking to therapists or anything like that. It's, it's really, you've got to kind of work it out for yourself and yeah, just soldier on, I guess. But you, we we had a good family. It was just that I could see the starting of unraveling happening from a pretty early age. And when you think back to what was going on with your parents, once you got sober, did you have a perspective change through the eyes of what it feels like to be caught in that whirlwind and what it might have felt like for them at that time? That changed my whole life. Like, honestly, I think I very much l- later in life, it took it took me quite a while, you know, working with a number of coaches and doing my own deep work. But you realize that your parents are just human beings at the end of the day. They're doing the best that they can. My mum was 18 when she got married. She had me at 19. She had my sister 11 months later. Wow. Then another girl and then followed by twins. By my mid-20s, she didn't, you know, back then they didn't have two cars. She, you know, my dad had a car. He went to work. He held all, all of the bank accounts. She didn't have a bank account. She was pretty, you know, pretty isolated in a lot of ways. And he's a young man. Who who's trying to build a life for his family, working a couple of jobs, but still wanting to explore the things that he wanted to explore. And I talk to them both now. Um, they're in their mid seventies or you know early mid seventies. And he, I talked to my dad not that long ago, and I'm like, Dad, you know, what were you guys thinking? Yeah, <laughs> he's like, he's like, that's just how it was. Like you did, you really 
we lived a very small, very contained life. Like the thought of even traveling, Australia is quite remote like that. It's not like you, you're in Europe or something, you're just kind of traveling amongst countries or, or whatever. You, you really didn't do a lot of traveling uh, at all back in the 60s and 70s. So they were doing the best that they can. And also, you know, if you look back on um, their parents as well and their parents before that, like generationally, people are just bringing to the table what they have, the capacity that they have. What ended up happening between your parents? So this is where things really turned for us as a family. I think that they were, it was tense for a number of years. And I think things got, were were bad between my parents and they were, as, as I found out a lot later, you know, my dad was having an affair. And my mum, as she she didn't know who to talk to, so she she felt ashamed. She felt very alone, very isolated. And um, her mother, whilst they had a reasonable relationship, her mother was very much of the old school. Like you're married, you just deal with it. Don't complain. Just be a good wife. She found solace with somebody who was respected in our community. And I, as a very observant young teenager, 13 or so, could see that there was something really not right. You know, I could sense that this this person portrayed themselves to be a caring support person, but I could absolutely sense that there was another agenda going on. And as it turned out, um, my mum became pregnant to this person and she had to leave our house and she needed somebody to go with her to help her. I was so angry, Ashley, like I, I had seen this. So this has been bubbling for a year or so. And I was like, you know, if you look what you're doing to us as a family, look, you're doing this and you're evil and you're this and you're that and you're despicable. And so I was like an angry, angry teenager and in so much pain. I look back now, I'm like, I'm so much pain, heartbroken really. And so she, she, I would was absolutely not going. My next sister down was like, I'm not going. So she took my 10 year old sister with her. And I, from that moment on, like the family unit was just a fragment of what it was. Yeah. How did you find out that your mother was pregnant by another person? Well, I knew I was watching and I could see the changes in her physically. And I could see also, you know, when you've got that like high level, the intuition was there. I didn't know it was intuition at the time, but the intuition, it's observation, it's being aware and therefore noticing more. And her anxiety was pretty high. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, she's she's sort of operating on a very like high scale of anxiety and um I'm observing in the background getting angrier and angrier and the anger's obviously covering up a lot deeper a lot of deep feelings and she eventually I was waiting for Ashley I'm like so when is she finally going to reveal you know do the big reveal to me and then um eventually one day she she said you know, come here, I want to talk to you. And I was like, oh, here we go, here we go. And um, she took me into my bedroom and we sat on the bed and and I just, I gave her no grace. Like I was like blank face, you're on your own. I'm not supporting you here. And she told me and in that moment, like I, it was real. She said the words, it was real. And it was, it was like, there was no going back. And I, I look back now and I just feel, I can feel my heart shattering, like just because she was my person. Like she was the one that I wanted to please. I was a real pleasy kid. You know, I wanted to get her approval. I wanted her around. I wanted her at my basketball games. I wanted her to, you know, to be my person. And then she had to leave and I didn't have a mum anymore. It felt like I didn't have a mum anymore. I had a mum. I say this without desperately without wanting to hurt her now because I know what pain she was going through, that it felt at the time that she had abandoned our family. She had betrayed us in the worst possible way. I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed of what was happening in my family. Like nobody I knew had that age. Everything sort of is one dimensional. It all seems like it is. Of course, you know, behind closed doors, there's all sorts of things happening. But none of my friends had divorced parents. I went to Catholic girls' school. You know, it was very straighty 180. The world I lived in was just very clinical like that. And this felt so left of that. Out of control. Yeah, out of control. So she left and she took my baby sister and and that was that. How did your dad react to, and obviously not well, but 
nobody, I don't think anyone would react well right away to that. But on a more macro level, was he able to show up for you, the kids after this happened at all? No, no. He, um, this is my memory, of course. <laughs> it's always a little bit distorted, but he was still working uh, quite a bit. He was absent from the house a lot. My, I was the angry teenager who was giving everyone the middle finger, but still not deviating very left or right of my good girl kind of like persona. Um, but my younger sister, who's 11 months younger than me, she stepped in and she took on the role of carer and she made the boys' lunches. She did the washing. She was... She was the one who picked up that role. And my mom says now, like, I was there every day. And I'm like, that doesn't feel like you were there every day. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, again, distorted memories, but it didn't feel like that. And dad, you know, I just remember us being a lot alone, kind of trying to just, our whole life's just changed. And then, you know, I would go and visit my mom's new place and she was doing it tough. Like I, there's no doubt about it. She was doing it tough, but she had made new, a new little home for herself. And of course I, I have to say like, you know, I, she had the baby and I, that's the most beautiful thing because I had a little baby sister mm-hmm. and that was blessing out of everything. So I, I got a little baby sister, but my little baby sister and my other sister they didn't live with us. They lived in this new little home that my mom was making for her new little family. Right, right. A lot of feelings, not a lot of coping skills. And so then you find alcohol. Yeah, not straight away, to be honest. I was playing pretty high level sport at that stage. So I'd made the the state team. I was going off to the Australian championships. So I was training a lot. I was playing at a pretty high level. I think I was managing, but what was happening internally was there was a sort of a twisting going on of compressing the anxiety, compressing the deep abandonment and betrayal feelings. There was, there was a churning and a, um, sort of a formulating of almost like a volcano inside of me while outwardly I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm playing basketball at pretty high level and getting good grades and I'm doing this, that and the other. There was cracks everywhere though. You know, I had, um, when I got my period for the first time, my mum wasn't there and I had to go to chemist. I'm like, I don't know what to buy. I don't know how to do this. And I'm crouching down, like kind of going to, to like read packets and, and, and then the shop lady came over and she accused me of shoplifting. She made me open my bag in the shop and she was like making a scene. And I was, I just, oh my God, I, I can feel like I can almost yeah. feel the rush of heat right now. Like the, oh. the, the complete embarrassment and shame and like, oh my God, I'm not, I wouldn't even dream. If you knew me, you would know yeah. I would not be stealing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not your girl, um, but I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, my mum's not here and I have no idea. So I used toilet paper for quite a while. You know, I just didn't know what to buy. I didn't want to talk to my mum. I, I just, you know, there was sort of a lot going on in the background, trying to hold it together and manage it on my own and, and do all the things. And then I guess from about the age of 16 or so, we, we started going out, you know, we started like going out to parties and things and I would drink, but not a lot, but immediately I was like, oh, this is, this is interesting. This is like a bit of relief, bit of relief, relief. Yeah. a little bit of relief for a moment. Yeah. So over the next couple of years, it just started to escalate and I was in love. That was it. That was it. It was my thing. And I, it was my relief, but it was also from the very, from almost from the very start, it was um, also the outlet that everything came gushing out, you know, so towards the end of the night, I'm always the one falling my eyes out, you know, <laughs> having deep and meaningfuls with my friend in the corner, like just, you know, and then the next day waking up going, oh my God, we didn't have mobile phones. <laughs> right, right, right. You just I, had to sit I can't with it. Even. But you yeah. had to sit with it and, you know, that that feeling in the pit of your stomach, what did I say? Who did I say it to? When can I call them? When can I sort of start to ask the questions to see, you know, how bad was it? How bad was it? Yeah. A lot of people associate alcoholism or struggles with alcohol with these crazy bottoms. And, and I probably don't help that stereotype because I tell a lot of those stories. But I think it's really important to highlight the fact that you are having signs of a struggle with drinking just by feeling shame and embarrassment 
the next day and wondering what you said and that cycle, just that cycle on its own is enough to indicate a problem drinking. And it doesn't mean you have to have been arrested and have all these consequences, but these emotional consequences you're describing, they're real and they take a toll and they are compounding. And I, I, I really, I hear that in your story. Yeah, it's so true. And it was kind of like, it was worth it. It was worth, like it was worth it to keep drinking, to have that, even though it was starting to, at a very early age, impact me in, in, in those ways. But I also didn't have an off button from a very early age. So, you know, I was not the person who was ever going to stop at one or two. I was always the one who was going to keep drinking. And that was that was very easy to disguise in my 20s and 30s because I was with like-minded people, but I didn't stop. Like I so did not stop. you, my friend, did the classy version of the classic move. <laughs> and I love it because I had never thought about it until I was reading about your story, which was you dated the dealer. You went to work. I love that. You dated the dealer. You went to work for the wine industry. It's brilliant. You're now I know, right? Yeah, you you dated the dealer. Well, I have to do this. I mean, you know what? I get the you get the free wine. I have to try it. You made it a whole thing, and you get to hide. And it's genius. It's absolutely genius. I used to joke about wanting to be the uh, the tester, you know, of of some alcohol, and that joke never landed very well. But you know, your entrance into the wine, and you didn't just go into the wine business. You studied it. You academically involved alcohol. I just love everything about this. Tell me everything. Love that you describe it like that. I know, right? I mean, high achiever in every way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Uh, and also I I do like the twist of going to university um, to add that. Make it official. (laughs) You need a doctorate in wine. Duh. Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) I'm a doctor of alcohol. It's, it can't be a problem. Yeah. And therefore, yeah, that is, you know, that is going to be my story forever. Um, yeah, look, I, I just, I do constantly crack myself up. I, I like to amuse myself. And sometimes if I do think back, I'm like, geez, you really, um, you were so earnest about it. <laughs> but at the same time, like it's, it's just, I can see how ridiculous and how genius it was at the same time, because, you know, I traveled overseas in my early twenties. I went, did the backpacking with my girlfriend and, you know, we were, I came back, I was like, you know, too cool for school. I'm, you know, I've been to Europe. Hey, everyone, I've been to Europe. I'm like really the thing. And then I, I was also like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Like, I can't, I'd done a degree. I'd already done my university degree. And I was like, I just don't know what I'm going to do now. I've come back from this European trip. I'm now at the point in my 20s where it's time to get serious. You can't F around any, anymore. So I was like, what am I going to do? And I had studied viticulture at um, university as part of the semester. And I was like, viticulture, you know, that's, you know, grapes are growing. That sounds super interesting because uh, I love the outdoors. I love plants, you know, I mm-hmm. love wine. <laughs> the outdoors. Um, <laughs> justification. <laughs> Oh my God. Grapes are grown outdoors. This is a, yeah, you're, I mean, fruit. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah, fruit, you know, agriculture. You know. Yes. Yes. But uh, you had to actually go to ag college. And I was like, yeah, no, I can't move to the country. You know, I've already been to university. But you could study wine marketing at university by uh, distant education. So I could do that virtually and then just go across to the university for, you know, on-site several times a year. Cool. I'll do that. That is perfect for me. So yeah, I, there was only three of us doing this particular course in that year from Melbourne and the university was in Adelaide, uh, which is, you know, west of Melbourne in South Australia. And uh, so we would trek across to uh, our offsite several times a year. And um, it was just so much fun, obviously so much fun. I'm with people who are genuinely outgoing, gregarious, um, very social. I could ignore that part of me, that, that very, very sad, lonely girl who had been, you know, betrayed. It was like, I've got this big life now and I'm, you know, I can ignore the rest. Everything's great. And 
And yeah, so then I, um, you know, fast forward a few years, I ended up with a, a job working for a wine distribution company and we distributed about a hundred or so different brands and I worked with restaurants. Yeah, so it was very, and it was the early 90s. So, you know, we were talking People are still having long lunches. They're spending money. Restaurants are really great. It's all booming. The wine industry is going ballistic. Yeah, it's not a commodity. We're really talking about distinguishing grapes from one variety to the other. Where you know, it's really it was a beautiful time. And I look back now, and I'm like, there's a lot of people in that industry that don't have drinking problems, like, and a lot that do, obviously. But the ones that that don't, like these. Some of these people are super sincere about the knowledge that they've built up around grapes and and wine and wine and food matching. And it's just a very, it's, it's a lovely, lovely thing. I just happened to have problem and I was able to conceal it very, very well in that environment. Yeah, right, right. very, very well. Very well. Fun. It was fun until it wasn't. It was fun until it wasn't. That's That's the perfect phrase because I think so many people experience that. And I like to try to highlight the period of time where it's starting to go from it it was fun and it's starting to crack. The cracks and the it was fun. Because I think a lot of people live at that point for longer than they have to. What did that look like in this case? So I'm in my 30s at this point and I've fallen in love, like deeply in love with actually a colleague. And in fact, if we look back now, there are a lot of relationships that came from that organization. So I'd fallen deeply in love with somebody and it was it was a magical time. I had never felt like that. We moved in together. I was promoted at work. Things were really, really good. And then the owner of the company, he just kept dropping hints. You know, New South Wales is, we were based in Victoria, New South Wales, another state of Australia. And New South Wales, you know, not doing so well. The culture's really bad up there. They're not making any money. Profitability's declining. The staff aren't happy, blah, blah. Just dropping hints left, right, and center. And I'm like, I don't want to hear any of this. And my partner was like, this is our golden opportunity. Like, let's put our hands up and let's go to Sydney. I was very resistant. But this, I'm still deep down so attached to my family, so attached to my friends and my environment. I've been promoted. And anyway, it came to pass that I kind of felt backed into a corner to say yes to all of this. And from the moment that we moved to Sydney to take on this role, and it was only one role, that was part of the problem. The owner, I mean, in an ideal situation, if we weren't together, he would have moved my partner up to Sydney and had me running a state down here. But we were a couple, so he couldn't not send one without the other. And really, there was only one job. So that was one of the problems from the very beginning. How do we as partners job share essentially when we're trying to run a sales team and run a state and and probably about three months after we arrived I had my first panic attack I had had a panic attack about 10 years earlier but this was something next level and it was so unexpected and it happened in a in the boardroom in the middle of a meeting and I was so shocked I excused myself from that meeting took myself into the bathroom locked myself in the toilet and I was just looking at my arms going what is what is going on here like my arms are like jelly they like they not they don't belong to me my heart my the sweat the ringing in my ears it was just I honestly I, I did not know what was happening to me I couldn't breathe properly so I had to calm myself in there of course go back into that state of you've got to look after yourself you've got to you know You've soldier got to go up. through it. Yeah, soldier up. And um, I don't know how long that took to to gain control of myself, but I, I gained control of myself, went back in, but I was totally thrown. Like from that moment, I was like, what the hell was that? And I think that hypervigilance started to creep back in again at that moment, the not knowing of whether something like that would happen. I'm obviously still drinking a lot at this stage, but it's not, it's, it hasn't changed from what I was drinking before, but now it's got this extra element in it. Like now there's a panic attack and now my anxiety is starting to amp up a little bit because I'm wondering if that's going to happen again. And it did, it happened again. And it happened in a similar type of circumstance. Um, this time we were in the boardroom and we're having a tasting because, you know, that's what you do, right? right? right. You have, you're tasting wine. Like it could be nine o'clock in the morning, honestly. 
and someone passed the bottle to me to fill my glass and actually I couldn't pick up the bottle properly. Like I was like, I cannot pour a little bit of wine into this glass because I can't pick up a bottle. So I, oh, sorry, everyone, like, you know, not feeling very well, just going to excuse myself, leave the room. I'm in the bathroom again. What is going, like, what is going on? So that just started a whole new phase of life. It was pretty hideous. They were random, you know, and what happens with panic and anxiety is you start to associate certain situations with that being a trigger and the anticipation that that is coming up is enough to start the looping of those thoughts through your mind that heightens that anxiety that almost guarantees that the prophecy will come true. Like you will, yes, you will go into that room. And yes, when you go to pick up a bottle to pour into your glass, yes, your arms will be dead and you won't be able to pick it up. That is a truth that you cannot deny. And that's what was happening. And so I was drinking to try and like, because if I had a few drinks, that would cut like temporarily calm down the anxiety and I would be, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm cool. I'm on this. I'm okay. So I'm starting to now enter a very dangerous cycle of, yeah, of feeding one problem with the other problem with the, you know, and piling it top on top on top. And then at the same time, suppressing all of the fear and, and growing terror around, oh my God, because this is a very social industry, I have to go and host lunches. I have to be out with customers. I, I am part of groups within the industry. It's constant. So yeah, it's really starting to affect me. I'm, I'm probably around about late thirties, early forties here at this time. And if so I things asked, are going downhill. And if I had asked you if you had a drinking problem, what would you have said? I 100% knew I had a drinking problem and had known that for a long, long time because I was super observant as well. I knew that people didn't drink like I drank. I knew that, you know, me, I was sneaking around at this stage. I was starting to sneak alcohol. But had somebody asked me, I would have like shriveled up and died. If someone said to me, do you think you have a drinking problem? I would be like, no. What do you mean? Right, right. You know, what what are you saying? What have you you seen? What 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 have I let you see? So that thought that somebody might know everything that I was madly doing to try and hide my problem would have just been, I would have just completely lost my shit if someone had confronted confronted me with it. And I, I also was shocked that people weren't noticing. <laughs> like falling to pieces here, people. I'm, you know, got this inner turmoil going on. And I'm like obviously carrying it off like an Academy Award winning actress because no one's noticing. And of course, nobody knows that I'm secretly drinking either. So they're like, you don't drink that much. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't really in front of you. Um, uh, And then then I had this one panic attack that was, I, I thought I was having a heart attack. My heart was beating so badly. I, um, went into my partner's office and I said, I think I'm like, you need to take me to a doctor now. And he took one look at me and he was like, oh shit, you know, whisked me down to the doctor and they, they put me in, they put all sorts of things on me and they're, they're like, your blood pressure is like ridiculous. You are way too young to have a heart attack. Like what is going on here? And I got sent to a neurologist and I came out to my doctor. I told, I did tell my doctor. Um, and she sent me to uh, an alcohol counsellor who had like literally no idea. I did not help her, but she had no idea. So I was I was trying to, in my own way, I think, show that I was starting to lose control. I couldn't keep it together. But nothing came of that. Like even my partner, like I'm like, he's like, I just, I didn't, I thought you were anxious. I knew about your anxiety. I thought you were just anxious. Like I didn't know how bad the drinking was. And I didn't want, like I knew his background. His mother had been an alcoholic. And I knew that had he had a real inkling of what was going on, that would potentially be destructive for our relationship. I wasn't prepared to give up the drinking. I wasn't prepared to give up the relationship. So I would put up with and try and manage what was happening. Yeah. Would it be accurate to say that some of the thoughts going on for you when the thought of considering giving up alcohol went through was, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lose my partner if I stop drinking. I couldn't think about not drinking. I actually, hand on heart, did not think that that was an option. 
that was not an option. Like I was like, the only thoughts that were spinning through my head was how am I going to manage this? How am I going to manage the next bit? How am I going to manage like the, 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 the. So for me, I never imagined that someone like me could give up. I was like, I, I just assumed that there was no hope for me in that regard, that I would just have to manage the situation as I had always managed situations on my own until I couldn't. Like I just, I just tried. I just didn't think it was possible, Ashley, to, to give it up. Like it was, I'd spent 20 years almost in that industry by then. It was my entire network. I, it was my career. It was my friendship groups. It was my partner. It was, yeah, I just couldn't imagine that that was an option. What was the moment where you started to imagine that as an option? What what brought you to that? In retrospect, looking back, you just cannot imagine it being okay on the other side. Like you just can't imagine it. So as bad as it is, as bad as it is, that that is Still got better. to be better. Yeah, yeah it's it, that that's just it how you be. think. It has to be right. So, you know, I think uh, what what had happened back in 2012 was um, a new CEO had come into the business. And by this stage, the wine industry had changed dramatically. Like it was very much like uh, in some ways, a lot of the nicety and fun had disappeared. It was it was more of a box moving, revenue generating kind of business. It had lost a little bit of the feels and the CEO, this new CEO had come in and said, oh, geez, you know, we have two senior people kind of running the business up in New South Wales. We really only need one. And then it was put to us, did one of us want to take a redundancy? And my husband, oh, he's not my husband now, but back then my partner, he was like, I think this is a really great opportunity. And I think you should take a redundancy. It was again, who don't know what a redundancy is. So essentially it's, they, they just, it's almost, I mean, again, essentially you're being fired, but you are accepting that situation and they're giving you a, a really decent payout, like a handshake on the way through. It's not fired as in more like laid we off. think you've done it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like laid off. Anyway, I, I interpreted that as a personal attack. Like I'd given this company 15 years. Right. Right. So outwardly I'm like, fine, you know, I'll do it. But inwardly I'm like, again, like in disbelief, I've gone through so much. I've moved my life. I've just, you know, I've been managing this horrible, horrible situation for years now. And, you know, in a second, you basically saying we don't need you or want you. That's how I'm interpreting it. And so I take that redundancy, but I'm, yeah, that just gives me days to drink. Right. And, um, then my husband, um, decides he's fed up too. So a couple of months later he resigns and my dog who was 18 passed away. Well, he was old, but he passed away. And my partner said to me, listen, why don't we reassess? We'll take next year off. We'll go traveling around Australia and we'll come back and we'll look at new careers. You know, we'll take the year off, a year of retirement early. Like, let's just get a tent. We'll just go and see. And I was like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's like when my husband points at a van and says, we could go travel, you know, that all of us could top in. I was like, I would rather (laughs) know. That part was okay for me, but it was more about he has no idea the degree of work that goes into maintaining what needs to be maintained, the appearance. Um, now I'm going to have to do it from a tent, you know, in remote areas. Like, <laughs> oh God. this is going to be next level. Yeah. So we took off and it was the best and worst of years. I can say that. But once we came back from that year off, it was a very quick downhill from there. That was the end of 2013. We got back in, I think, late November. I was completely a mess by this stage. Like I'm, my husband actually thinks I'm sort of going a little bit psychotic but it's, it's just catching up, but I'm online. Like by this stage, I'm online. I'm searching the um, blogs for sober bloggers. I'm like doing all the tests. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm doing whatever. I'm, I'm like really realizing I'm coming to a crux here, somewhere down the line, somewhere soon, something's going to happen to take me to that point. And, um, because there, I cannot see a way forward. I can't see a way back. I can't, I can't just don't know how to handle this on my own anymore. Yeah. So by that stage, and then of course we're coming up to my nine year soberversary now. So April 14 in 2014 was the day that the line in the sand was drawn forever. Yeah. What did that look like? The week before was, it feels 
so much longer than a week. It feels like an entire, like a movie of my life. Like my husband, partner at the time had left. By the way, he, I did not want to get married because I was like, and I did not want to have children. I was so scared that I was going to mess up somebody else's life. I knew how messed up I was inside. So I'm like consciously making that decision. We come back from this trip. He's almost immediately found a passion in finance. He is like a numbers guy. He probably should have been doing it all along. So he has to go into state to do the qualification for this new career. So I'm at home on my own this particular week. And as soon as he leaves, I'm right into action. So I'm free for the next few days. I have to go and get my supplies. I have to just, you know, tick all the boxes, blah, blah. And I am basically on a bender for those few few days. And he came back on the Thursday afternoon. I'm in bed and I'm super like I'm hung, hungover. I've been drinking, sleeping, drinking, sleeping, drinking. And I tell him I'm sick. And all through that weekend, I'm sick, but I'm not. I'm, I'm sick, but I'm really quickly sick. <laughs> um, and then on the Monday, I'm beside, like, I'm just almost like metaphorically crawling by my fingernails. I'm like so exhausted, so depleted nutritionally. I have not slept properly. I'm just a shell. I'm not, I don't even recognize, I don't recognize who this person is. I can't feel anymore. At this point, I, I'm so constantly overcome by anxiety and panic and drinking. And it's just this horrible cycle and I can't do it anymore. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like pondering, what do I do? Come on, what do I do? My partner's cooking soup and I'm in the corner and he says, come and have your lunch. And I come over and I cannot pick up a spoon, can't pick up a spoon to feed myself. In my own house, Monday afternoon, just with my partner, I'm, I have nothing, nothing. And the prospect is that I'm really, I'm going to die. Like I am fucking going to die because I can't do it anymore. I just can't do it anymore. So he's looking at me like, I don't know what to do to help you. And he doesn't obviously know what to do to help me because he doesn't know. Like I'm so supremely good at this disguise. I've worn it for so long. He's not in a position to understand the depths of where I am. I'm back in, you know, sitting back in that chair and I'm looking outside and I'm like, I give up. I give up. Can't do it anymore. I just give up. And in that moment, I put down the burden that I was carrying and that was it. Like that was literally it. I, I felt in that moment of total despair. I could see, could see the destruction, the, the disintegrated, like the, you know, in the fire where the little pieces of paper sort of fly up and they're gone. I could see the incineration of this life that was the cinders of the paper was just disappearing into the universe. And I was disappearing. I had disappeared. And there was something inside of me that moment that was, I could only say is, is a moment of God for me because it really spoke to me, you know, in a way that was like, no, 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 put it down, surrender. You found a, a blogger in Paris who spoke yeah. to you. Tell me about that experience. So on the Thursday, this the Thursday that my partner came home that morning. So I, I had found, and her name is Belle, tired of thinking about drinking, bit, bit of a plug there for her because she saved my life in many ways. She had a hundred day challenge and I had had to apply for it. So this is part of her, the way she works. I was like, I have to apply to give up alcohol for a hundred days. I can't, can't fathom. So I had pressed apply on that Thursday morning and she had come back it might have been on the Sunday or something that there was a place available for me. So I, um, after that moment on the on the Monday, uh, I, I emailed back and I said, "I'm in." And from you know, I'm like, "Okay, day one." You you get sober and you you're able to find a new career in in an area of tech that you were unfamiliar with before, and you start a career with Amazon. How surprised were you when you were able to do that to to find that opportunity? Oh, <laughs> I still laugh. I like. I, I mean, I laugh and I tell the story to lots of people because it just seems so absurd that you know, a going from the wine industry to tech, and then not just tech, but you're working for Amazon Web Services, who are this global sort of giant. I've never worked for a global organization before. I'm in my early 50s. I'm learning a whole new set of, there's a whole new set of rules I never knew existed. And also this this brand new thing called tech and cloud technology. And 
it just makes me laugh because, you know, when I, I'm, I'm running the show in the wine industry for this organization and basically I would call IT like mm-hmm. <laughs> 25 times a day and they would come and they'd go, just turn it on and off, Annie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not that, not that it's like completely similar, but that was my level of like interest in tech back then to now. And it is just the most incredible feeling to learn and to recognize the value you can bring to an organization that is not typical of where your original original roots might have been. Um, so, you know, it's been an absolute wild ride. And I couldn't even, if someone had have given me a million dollars and said, guess where you're going to be in 10 years, like a year before I stopped drinking, sorry, no way. Like there is just, it's too outlandish. It's not, it's like off the scale outlandish. The fact that I would be giving up drinking, but also like working in cloud technology at a senior level, like working, you know, with people across Australia and New Zealand and amazing, amazing people. But uh, I can't remember who said it, but somebody who said, we overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what we can do in 10. Mm. And Love that. I haven't heard that. I think it was Bill Gates. I think it was Bill Gates. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was Bill Gates. But when I look back, I'm like, it hasn't even been 10 years since I gave up drinking. And I mean, nine years is incredible. But when I think about what has happened in that 10 years and what I think about, oh, I have to do this now, or I'm, you know, oh, I haven't haven't done that thing that I always wanted to do. I'm like, dude, in 10 years, you could have achieved 20 times what you think you haven't achieved already. So I think it's really around that perspective change as well. Um, That's been quite incredible. You did something really, really cool that I talk about a lot trying to get more people to do, which is that on LinkedIn, you came out about your recovery, about your sobriety on your 3000th day. And, you know, from a leadership at Amazon position, you shared in a, in a corporate environment, I am sober at this, you know, I am celebrating this. I am proud of this. When we disclose this information, a lot of people think they're going to be demonized for it and, and what actually tends to happen. It's the complete opposite. Again, perspective, what we think people might think, and then that authenticity of really sharing from your heart with no agenda there other than to hopefully be of service to somebody out there who might still be suffering or in that desperate situation of trying to maintain an appear like an appearance that is going to unravel at some point. So I had, I would say, dozens of people reach out to me several from my own organization who basically shared that they were struggling. One person was, well, had said to me that they were going to have to change jobs because they couldn't travel anymore. Their drinking was too too out of control. There was a couple of young girls who actually reached out and um, said that they could see that their drinking was starting to get a little bit worry, you know, worrisome for them. I, I think the overwhelmingly was such a positive reaction um, from my colleagues, from people I didn't know. I've never been shy, by the way, like once from the moment I decided I couldn't do the drinking thing anymore and I was still going to do the sober thing. I've never been shy in sharing my story to the fullest and hopefully in a way that can help. You can go on and have an amazing, like an amazing life beyond booze, but also to start to normalize that this is this is something that there are many, many, many people who are struggling with. You, you might not be drinking secretly. Um, you might not be drinking every day even, but to some degree, you may be worried about your drinking. Uh, you may realize that it is a, it's become a bit of a crutch. And I guess I'm very passionate about just saying it's okay to want to acknowledge that you have an issue um, or not an issue. Just you want to acknowledge that drinking is not something you want to engage in. That's okay. It's okay. I love your podcast. I love it so much. I love that we have more and more people in this world linking arms and saying, you know what? We're only human. And this stuff's fucking 
addictive. Like it's, we are human beings trying to live and work with human emotions and circumstances and events and things that are in our control and things that are out of our control. That, well, that brings us to Powerfully Sober. Last year, you started Powerfully Sober. Tell me about that. So just around that time where I wrote the LinkedIn post on my 3000th day, which was I think in July last year, so in between, you know, everything that had happened in this, you know, how I was saying you, we underestimate what we can do in 10 years. So I had gone through a lot of different things. I'd gone back to school. I had studied coaching. I'd studied nutrition. I had done some consulting work. I had got married, got married on my 50th. We did a whole heap of different things. And I was, I actually was coaching for a few years. And then I started, I pivoted into this tech space and that's been going incredibly well. And then last year, I had been feeling a little bit of a tap on my shoulder. You know, there was something that I needed. I needed for my growth and I needed for, I was feeling about how I could be of service. And I made this post and I was like, you know what? There is something so powerful about being sober. I guess the power, real, like it struck me then how the, the power of actually taking responsibility for developing the best, most extraordinary life possible, like empowering yourself to be the catalyst to create that. Like that is just, it gave me shivers. And I was like, I'm just like Googling, is there such a thing as powerfully sober? And no, there's not. And I'm like, well, now there is. I don't know yet what it looks like because I just planted a seed. And this is the other exciting thing, Ashley, is you don't need to know the thing. Like you can just, you can just have an idea. And one of my favorite sayings is let yourself be silently drawn by the strange pull of what you truly love. It will not lead you astray. And you can plant that seed and then to see what happens. So what happened after that was, because even when I was coaching earlier, I, I wasn't really focused in on um, sobriety at all. I was coaching different modalities and a few other different things, but this was, it, it was visceral. It was like, this is the thing. And um, so I just started thinking, what does that mean for me? And what, what am I doing? How am I being, how am I being in this world that can bring to life something that I can feel starting to grow inside of me. Like it's really, it's literally, literally growing. And that's, that's how it's evolving. Like it's still evolving, um, but it's just giving me so much joy in a world of tech where I can be doing the, put yourself into a corporate environment and then I can pull myself out of it at any time. I can center myself, I can ground myself. And then on, you know, outside of work, I can have my passion, which is powerfully sober, which actually feeds me and gives me energy to come back into corporate life and be a better person in that life as well. I love it. I love it. Well, where can people find you, Annie, if they are interested in hearing more and checking out Powerfully Sober? Uh, so my website is um, www.powerfullysober.com and people can potentially work with me two ways. There's a more tactical way of working with me called the Power Hour Plus at the moment. It's like this open-ended time that we can spend together to look at how to navigate early sobriety. And then I have a, a four-month program, which is probably my passion baby called the Sacred Walk. And that's everything that we've just been talking about. It's about seeing it. It's about feeling it. It's about loving it. That's something I, I think really is for people who are motivated to move beyond the kind of one-dimensional, I'm sober and I'm just going to grind my way through it to I'm fully here and I'm fully wanting to get to know the juice. I want to peel back that onion. I really want to have a look and maybe step on top of that mountain and, and see the new perspective of my life. Perfect. Thank you so, so much for being here. It is such a joy and such an honor to talk with you. I'm just, I love what you're doing and um, I'm so grateful for what you do as well. And I wish you every, every success and joy and anything possible in this world for you. I, I honestly, I just love what you do. Oh, thank you, Annie. I feel the same way about you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, I just love her and think that we should bring her here and make her our best friend. I second that wholeheartedly, completely. She's someone who within seconds, I'm like, yeah, you're my people. The way she talks, her energy, her whole thing. I'm like, I could listen to you talk just for hours. 
I root for her immediately. You're like, God, I'm just so glad, you know? Yes, I do know. And she's a great example of someone who's incredibly compelling and doesn't need to have the shock and awe. She didn't need to be arrested or have all the things happen or go wrong or the big salacious stuff that some of us have. Who? That, well, I don't know, yeah, but yeah, I've yeah. heard that that's a thing. Sure. And some of the... So she's very compelling and doesn't need those things to make her story compelling, which frankly says more about her story that she doesn't need those things. And I felt alcoholism in that because alcoholism is trying to, it's trying to survive, right? It, it does a very good job. It goes into the wine industry. It does these, you know, it's, she's going to manage, she's going to manage. And just the falling apart and then the panic attacks. And I made a note that to bring up that, and she, she does cover this, that alcohol at a certain rate causes panic attacks. And so you drink it mm-hmm. to ease. A lot of people drink it, you know, and it eases anxiety. You feel calm, but there's a, what's called the rebound effect, which basically makes you more anxious than you would have been after the fact. And that cycle continues until you require alcohol to ease the anxiety. But unbeknownst to you, alcohol is also magnifying your anxiety tenfold. Yeah. I mean, there was something that I felt like so visceral about these panic attacks, like just taking taking over her hands. I literally was like equating it with like her grip on things, right? Like oh, I losing, love that. losing her grip on reality, losing her grip on her life. And then like seemingly this really basic skill that would be important in the wine industry would be able to pick up a bottle of wine and pour <laughs> a glass, right? Like, isn't that so strange? But she's losing her grip, grip on the bottle, grip. grip on, yeah. I also thought that she balanced the story of my mom did this with, they were doing the best they could at the time. Here were the circumstances. I have a new understanding while, but also saying, but this is what I felt. And I think it's a really hard thing to do once you've done a lot of work to tell the story the way you experienced it when you have new information about what it feels like to be that age, what it feels like to deal with all those things. And you don't feel good about saying this stuff about your parents or whomever the the story involves, but that's what you experienced at the time. And sometimes people will just refuse to tell the story at all because they don't want to bring shame to whoever that person is, or other people will just not mention the fact that it turned out that the parents, you know, had cancer and couldn't be there or whatever. And I think she did a really good job of giving us both the, they were really young. They were 24. He, the dad was 24. He had six kids. He was, you know, trying to live a life and hold it together. And mom, she was out looking for support and this is what happened. And, and, and I love how she mentioned and she she abandoned us. She left, she took my sister, you know, in my head, took my sister, they've moved to the other side of Australia and she never sees her again. But she clarifies for us. I was, you know, I was abandoned by my mother. She took my sister and she clarifies. She was, I went to her house. She said she was there every day, but I don't remember any of that. And so my experience was this, but I want to add in this other information. I thought she handled that really well. Can I also just go on record? I just wanted out there publicly that I just like Australian people a lot. I just, <laughs> just generally speaking, I do. So I know I'm the only one and we don't all find yeah, them very charming. The only one. I'm I'm fine putting my stamp on that. I have met very few Australians that I did not like above average amounts. Yes, agreed. Like, it's the strangest way to say that. <laughs> Wait, I like you say? above um, average amount. Oh, Ooh. You want to tell the listeners? We've got a little Martha Washington vibes happening from Ashley. It's sort of a golden Martha Washington. Um, Yeah. You know, when you, you know, for my ladies out there, you remember when we were in the pool as kids and we would take our hair and dip it into the water and then flip it over and Mm -hmm. do the Martha Washington. That's what I'm doing right now. It looks really good. I feel like you need a brooch though. That's part of the problem that I'm seeing is that we do need to work a brooch into kind of every episode if that's going to be your look. Yeah. And well, Martha, I I really enjoyed Annie. I found her to just be incredibly compelling. If you want to work with Annie, which I would encourage people to do so. 
I've, if you got a taste in this just little sample size, she's a wise person who has done a lot of work and continues to do a lot of work and is really, truly inspiring to all kinds of people. So I would encourage you to check out Powerfully Sober and see how you all might fit together. Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with? today. There are lots of ways to get sober. And this was a perfect example of a non 12 step traditional route. Just remember that whatever you call your struggle, whether that's alcoholism, over drinking, heavy drinking, I just want to stop. I want to try to stop. I want to do a challenge, whatever it looks like. It's all good. Yours doesn't need to look the way everybody else's looks. And all you have to do is make one step, make one change in the right direction and see how it goes. So I'm rooting for you. I know Scott's rooting for you and we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.